I'm Ali Baker, she, her, an education lecturer and children's fantasy literature researcher at University of East London. You're listening to Fantasy Book Club, where a guest and I swap children's fantasy fiction, one classic and one contemporary, and we discuss them. Today, I'm joined by Alison Scott, conrunner, podcaster, superfan, and creator at Stowe Shirts and other places. Hello, Alison. How nice for you to Hello, join me. Hello, Ali. <laughs> Thank you wonderful. so much for inviting me to be on Fantasy Book Swap. Now, this is really super cool because I can see what your recording setup is. And you've got uh, a proper mic and everything. Um, I do. So, yeah, that's fantastic. So tell us a little bit more about Octothought, your podcast. What, what's that all about? So my podcast is Octothought, which I do with John Coxon and Liz Batty. And we record once a fortnight, more or less. We certainly issue an episode once a fortnight. Um, you can find us at octothorpe.podbean.com or in your podcast provider of choice. And we are a podcast about science fiction fandom and science fiction and related topics, which means that we just kind of witter on about the stuff that interests us. So if you like that sort of thing, Octothorpe is where you want to be. And I think probably quite a lot of the listeners of this podcast would quite like Octothorpe. So I'm giving a bit of a plug today. Yeah, I know. And I will add the link in the show notes. I I love Octothorpe. It's, It's really great. It's just like, sitting with you and John and Liz somewhere and, and listening to you be incredibly entertaining about the uh, science fiction fandom world and I love it. No, I was just going to say, except that because of all of our over-talking is edited out, it's much less um, random than it would be in the real world. <laughs> Which, yeah, maybe you should do um, an outtakes episode one time with all of your randomness. Yeah. The way to get the outtakes experience is that a couple of times at conventions, we've done Octothorpe live at a convention. And when we've done that, you can um, come along and listen to us recording live. And then you do, in fact, get all the rude words, all the outtakes, all the things that we decide on reflection. We probably don't want in the final podcast. (laughs) I really, really hope you do that at um, at EasterCon next year, because I would love that. So the book that you've chosen... If you know anyone involved in EasterCon programming, could you let me know? Um, I'll put in a good word, Alison. Let me say it that way. I'll put in a good word. So the book you chose was was Marianne Dreams um, by Catherine Storr. And I'm holding up my copy, which is from 1972 or something like that. Oh, let me check. It's from... Oh, no, it's 1968. My gosh, this Penguin book is the same age as me. It costs four shillings, I see. Um, so tell us what, Tell us about Marianne Dreams and why you, you chose it. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about the plot first. So mm. the plot of Marianne Dreams is that a girl on her, I think it's her 10th birthday, um, but don't mm. quote me, um, comes down with a mysterious illness um, and is confined to bed, which is a thing that they did then. And in order to amuse her, her mother is at her wit's end trying to find things to keep her occupied and finds um, an old work box of her grandmother's. And in the work box, there is a magic pencil, um, spoilers. Mm. And 
she draws things on the magic pencil with the magic pencil and then she dreams and the things that she draws appear in her dreams and why I chose it. Um, so there's a couple of reasons. The first is that it had, was a very influential book for me because there was a TV adaptation of this mm. um, novel. The TV adaptation is called Escape Into Night and you can get a, you can see it on YouTube or there's a black and white DVD of it. Um, it was a tea time television show in 1972 um, and was absolutely mortifying there's a whole generation of people who when you mention this to them go oh oh yes that was the scariest thing ever and if it was actually i think it was probably repeated because if it was only shown once in 1972 then i was six which would explain mm -hmm. why i was um scarred for life by it but there are other things that i like about this book as well um i particularly like that it does magic realism for kids so it, it kind of leaves open the question of what exactly is going on and this kind of liminal space between um, what's going on in the in the real world and what's going on in Marianne's dreams or her her fantasy life and then additionally I really like that um, Marianne's not the best child now it, it, it's kind of indicated that she's um, badly behaved because she's tucked up in bed and she is very fed up with this but she she is quite a bad-tempered and sulky girl, is Marianne. And I quite liked that when I was a kid because I was quite a bad-tempered and sulky girl. And I think a lot of children's books, the heroes and heroines of them are a bit pure for me. They don't, mm -hmm. they don't have bad thoughts that have consequences. So, so you know, we, you know, they, they, they're sometimes misguided. But in this case, Marianne is badly behaved and does some bad stuff and that leads to um mild peril this is mild peril being one of the ongoing themes of fantasy book swap um so but actually mild peril but also very real peril in the real world which the book is implying has happened as a result of marianne's bad behavior in her world so i like all of that stuff that's mm. what i like about it <laughs> i agree with you and i i i didn't pick it up at the time when i first read it because it absolutely scared the pants off me as a as a child reader. I don't remember the TV series, but we went for long periods of time when we didn't have a television um, because our TVs had a habit of blowing up and things like that, going on fire. This happened twice in my family um, because we were always getting cast off TVs from various people and they never worked properly. Um, so I did watch... We, we'll, we'll come back to the TV show, I think, because there are a couple of things that I I wanted to say about them, but about it. But what I've what I liked about it was reading as an adult. It made me think of things like what Katie did, and it made me think of Secret Garden, in particularly the Secret Garden, and I think that. Catherine Storr alludes to those books when she talks about the way that girls in books where the girl is ill becomes purified somehow through that illness. Um, and in uh, Secret Garden, it's all because of wholesome activities like gardening that uh, the, the children become redeemed. And I like that these children, uh, Catherine Storr doesn't punish them 
for being irritable or grumpy or bad tempered because Mark is also really bad tempered. The boy that appears in Marianne's dreams that I'd forgotten that her governess is also teaching and that's why Marianne hears about him in the first place. I hadn't picked that up at the time. Yeah, I think I think tutor is a better word than governess. We I think I've got class on the list of things I yes. talk about, but this is a this is a visiting tutor who um, goes and visits very poorly children in their homes. It's not it, it's nothing like as posh as the word governess would imply, and that mm. is also said in the book in the book and film as well. Absolutely, she's called a governess in the book, or in my edition of the book, anyway. But mm -hmm. yeah, you're right. A governess does sort of slightly suggest someone who is between a servant and a member of the family and lives in the house, like Jane Eyre or something. And and that's that's not what what uh, the, the, the I've completely forgotten what her name is. Miss Chesterfield. Thank you. Yes, like the sofa. Having yes. listened to episode two of Fantasy Book Swap, I have by my side a cheat sheet. <gasps> well done. Oh, yeah, because Phil and I forgot everything. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that's, uh, I think that's a, a really good point. I, I liked that about the book. Um, actually, the cover of the book my edition's cover really scared me as a child as well so that's uh that's another uh, i mean this is a proper scary book it is, it is more scary than most books for i mean it says i think readers of 10 and over just give me thought i had the physical book with me but i don't so there mm -hmm. you go um 10 and over but i certainly i certainly wasn't 10 when i read it for the first time and and it is more scary more it's more about the really scary things so so there's lots of there's lots of adventure in books and, and there's adventure in in tamarind but you never really think oh well somebody might die whereas i think in this book it is quite clear that mark might die spoiler klaxon uh, mark does not die um because there is only one children's book where the kid does die um yeah, there um, are when things like dogs die, though, and that's often very distressing. Yeah. yeah. But actually, at the front of my book, it says, this is a fascinating and unusual story, which will appeal especially to imaginative readers of eight or over. Now, so I mean... <laughs> more scary, more scary than most books for that age group, even I, then. I don't think... I, I, <laughs> I think I was at secondary school when I first read. I remember it reading it in my secondary school library. I don't know whether that I'm, probably was my first. Uh, I went to secondary school age 10 and I found it frightening at the age of 10. And actually rereading it at the age of 52, I had to read it during the day because it was a bit disquieting to read in bed at night. So, Proper yeah. horror. It actually is. horrible things in it that are imaginary i mean they're yeah. in they're in marianne's dreams but they are really properly scary and the notion that you might because of your inadequacies as a child who draws draw something that turned out to be much scarier than you think it is but in fact in this book the things she draws meaning them to be scary are scary and the things she draws meaning them to be not scary are not scary mm -hmm. and i know we'll be going around the houses on this but the other adaptation of this novel is a film called paper house which yes. i don't like at all 
And the reason no. I don't like it is that it goes in that direction. It says, oh, she's not very good at drawing. So if she draws something, meaning it to be nice and it turns out to be scary, it's a monster. And, and that I don't think that's what Catherine's story is about. What well, The reason this book is so unsettling is that Marianne is bad-tempered and then does some bad-tempered drawing and that's how the monsters are created and, and that's the thing that's really delicious about this book, I think. Yes, and uh, they have to deal, the children have to deal with the monsters that are the monsters of their imagination and you could read it, are the monsters of their illnesses that uh, are the, the kind of the the danger that they face in everyday life but they're not they're not punished in that they don't get physically hurt by anything it, it's an emotional um the emotional hurt that that they they do to themselves often rather than actually being punished for physically by doing you know marianne could easily have drawn something that would physically hurt Mark, but she doesn't. Um, and she does try to make up for her bad behaviour, but sometimes the fact that she's not very good at drawing creates issues for them. Mm -hmm. She um, she did scribble over the windows and that, that has an effect, but then later she scribbled over Mark, but luckily she did not do it with the magic pencil. Yes, and yes. And all is well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it is a bit of a spoil. I, I mean, I, I should probably say that we will have spoilers throughout for both books. Read them; they won't take you very long. Read them and yeah. then come and listen to the podcast. So she the, it, she spends some time working out that the, the magic is coming from the pencil rather than anything else. And, and actually, um, the American editions of the books of this book and Marianne Dreams, uh, no, Marianne and Mark, the second book, um, which I can't believe it i can't get hold of it at all but they they called the magic pencil books which kind of makes me a bit nauseous a bit like the way that mel stretfield books are called the shoe books yes in, i don't uh, think the magic pencil appears in in the sequel unless i am forgetting something it's not mm. i mean the the pencil has done its work by the end of this book mm. and it 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 deals with itself in a in a very appropriate way that slightly merit slightly reminded me of the magic in edward eager's books if you've no i've never if, read if you've read any of those well i'm sure that they may come up at some point in in, in yeah. the matter of old-fashioned children's fantasy books but they um the magic kind of sorts itself out in those books and the magic sorts itself out in this mm. book when it's when its purpose has been concluded when the kids are clearly on the road to recovery and they're both mm. going on their separate holidays at the end of the book um you the pencil goes on oh, well, my job's done here i'm done now mm. yes yeah. i i think that i would have quite liked to know whether it had been a magic pencil for marianne's grandmother as well but... well wouldn't you just i mean <laughs> but that's, so, that's... so store store never tells you the whole story i mean although i'm not a big fan of her other um the other books of stores that have survived are Clever Polly and the Stupid Wolf. And I, I think I encountered those having read Marianne Dreams and thought them rather childish. And then I did come back to them and go, oh, yes, well, these are very well constructed and they are funny. But they've never really done it for me in the same way. Whereas some of her other 
mm. um, almost unobtainium um, books for slightly older children and teenagers mm. are also quite good, though none of them are as good as Marianne Dreams. It's by far the best of them. No, uh, the, the Clever Polly and the Stupid Wolf books, if you read, if you came to read them after you'd read Marianne Dreams, you would think, oh, these are, there, there's none of the spookiness, there's none of the creepiness, there's no, there's not really any even mild peril in the book because the wolf is no match for Polly. But I have read those those short stories as well. They're not they're not novels to children. Um, well, since I became a teacher at the age in nineteen ninety, so they're, they're reading out loud books. They are reading out loud books for much younger children. Um, and I, yeah. I they for, for kind hilarious. of five and six year olds. Yeah, yeah. I think I've read them to children between the ages of six and nine, and children have always found them hilarious and really enjoyed them um because you know it's it's the the kind of the small probably weaker character against a larger potentially dangerous character but the larger potentially dangerous character is no match for the cleverness and and uh, imagination of the smaller characters so they're very classic upended fairy tales really i really enjoy them mm-hmm. So how old were you when you first read um, Marianne Dreams? I don't know. I mean, I think I probably saw the TV show first. And I I do have a very, and I didn't see the whole, this is why I think, although the internet says it was only screened once, I think it must have been screened more than once. Because I have a very vivid memory. I was turning over to ITV. We were only allowed to watch ITV for specific programmes, which included Magpie. So this was on before Magpie, and um, that's that's how early in the afternoon it was. Mm. So I turned over for Magpie and saw these these stones behind the, mm. the the gate as a cliffhanger of one of the episodes. And I was like, oh, that's amazing! And of course, we watched the next week and discovered that it was amazing and also terrifying. And then I got the book from the library. I think probably I I think you had a lot of discussion about libraries in the first mm. episode and I had friendly we moved around a lot so I didn't really exhaustively explore libraries in the way that some people mm. I didn't get into things like the library into library loan scheme but I did have friendly librarians who liked children mm. who read and and I think it was a librarian who found me this book to read first of all so I probably was about I think probably seven or eight when I read it um, and yes right, it was quite scary but then I think certainly my Memory, my sort of memory of reading it as a child does not include things like the detail of Mark's illness. So Mark has polio. Mm. Um, Catherine Storr was a doctor, so she knew quite a lot about diseases and about children and about the way in which children's diseases were treated. I think one of the things you've got on the list is pandemic rereading. And Mm. this is this is an interesting both of the children's illnesses. Um, So Mark has polio. And he's, this is 1958, this book, and it's a contemporary novel. So Mark was mm. slightly unlucky. Most children were vaccinated in 1958, but quite a lot still weren't, because as we now know, vaccination programs are patchier than you think. Yes. In Historically, you kind of go, oh, we had an illness, then everyone got vaccinated and it was all fine. That's not how it works. It had, mm. And they had all the same arguments about polio vaccination that we're seeing now. Polio is like COVID. This is something that somebody told me 
I, I read an article about it about four or five months ago, and it's kind of stuck with me. Um, but it's very obvious from mm. reading about the vaccination strategy. 70% of polio cases are symptomatic. The vast majority of the rest are mild. Um, and then you just get these few cases that lead to death or lifelong injury. Mm. It's a very, it's it, it has a very similar, and then, then this thing with months or years of recovery for some yeah. unlucky kids. Um, and so it's it's quite timely and and also although Marianne doesn't have polio it doesn't state to what disease she does have but she just has a viral illness for which yeah. quite a long period of rest and, and we you and I both grew up in the kind of magic years of antibiotics where children were essentially never put on long bed rest they they change Marianne's illness to, to a pony riding accident yes. in the in the TV show, I think because even by 1972, people were like, well, children don't stay in bed for two months. That doesn't happen. But I think in, in the 50s, it did. Um, so I did actually. And, have, and it may do again. I did actually have a lot of time off school as a child. I had undiagnosed asthma. So I got mm -hmm. chest infections every mm -hmm. winter. I did at one point get a tubercular infection and uh i was ill for quite a long time with that so i did spend I, I never was in hospital for a long time but i i did have sometimes weeks off school through being ill and uh and that's one of the reasons why i i read so voraciously as a child was because i was too ill to go to school or too ill to go out to play and actually i had forgotten that mark had polio but in my memory it um marianne had um measles i don't know why i thought she had weasels of course she doesn't have measles because if she had had measles there would be stories about her having spots uh and you know being itchy and cranky and that being the reason so i yeah, yeah it's, have a spotty illness she doesn't have a spotty illness she has she some has kind of viral post flu chest infection type. yeah something flu, like that yeah something yeah. like that but um and something I mean, a bad case of flu would do it yeah. something that that she can't mark, mark can't spent some time in an iron lung um yeah mm. and that that was the thing that really struck me because i'd totally forgotten that in the interim period of me reading um these book this book and that i think that the reason that it it struck me so much about reading this during a pandemic and um, the covid pandemic was that the kind of the iron lung thing made me think of intubation and those kind of the really horrible aspects of really nasty illnesses that um you know that perhaps the port the, the polio uh equivalency of the, the nastiness of the treatment um that made me that it made me think yes i think oh. i probably misread this as a child i I don't think, I mean, I think probably because by the time I read this, I knew that that all the storybooks come out all right, apart <laughs> from the one where it doesn't. Um, but I don't think I thought that there was, that Mark was in any danger, whereas it is clear mm. in in the book that it's touch and go, that his his parents, his teacher, everybody is very worried for him. They, mm. they think he may not live. Um, yeah, and then the implication that he may or may not have been cured because this is a magic realism book, so it may or may not be Marianne's actions in the real world that they yeah. do seem to match 
watch the progress of his, his illness. But mm-hmm. but the question's left open. Um, you say mix of genres on the prompt list, and this is yeah. kind of so. This is horror, and it's fantasy, and it's magic realism. Um, yes, because they, there are the, the the parallels between what's going on in the real world and what's going on in the dream. Um, and what is happening in the real world, apart from the illnesses, is really quite prosaic. It's, you know, details of, you know, Marianne being bored in bed and getting fed up. And and that, that that's all very quite boring. Not boring because it's beautifully written, but it's very, very small cast. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the TV show has a cast of five and it turns out that the book also has a cast of five. There are yes. no more characters. Essentially, even there Marianne's... Is the, there is Marianne's mother and Marianne and Mark and the doctor and the teacher. And her father is sort of in an, mentioned in the book, but is barely present in the book, which I suppose for a sick child could be realistic. Um, and also dad... Uh, he's an engineer working abroad. Yes, yeah. So that, that's In both not... the book and the, and the TV show, he's mm. explicitly working abroad, which is why he's never there. Yes. So... Um, you, in the theory that the, ch- the parents have to always be removed from the action, um, mm. in Marianne Dreams, the, the father is removed by working abroad and the mother is removed by being up to her eyeballs in trying to look after everything uh, and also have a sick child. Yes. Um, uh, so she, she is kind of frantically distracted a lot of the time. Yes, absolutely. Um, and and that, that's why Marianne gets quite cross sometimes in the book with her mother because she she's bored because her mother has to do other things like go to the shops and she can only go to the shops when Miss Chesterfield is there and and so on yeah it, it's it is a uh, you sort of think as an adult well maybe her maybe her mum got Miss Chesterfield to come in order to uh, make sure that Marianne didn't fall behind on her schoolwork but also perhaps because then when else is she gonna do the shopping, do the cleaning, whatever. So I have much more sympathy with her as as an adult reader than I did as a child reader. (laughs) No, that's absolutely, that's, I I think Marianne's mother is put in there for for parents reading the book. Yes, almost certainly. Oh, what would it be like to have a child in bed for three months? Oh, oh yeah, no, it would be like that. My sister was in hospital for, over the entire summer of, I think, the summer of 1979, I think, mm-hmm. um, because she broke her leg. And we, I remember having to go and visit my sister in hospital every day. And, uh, you know, it being a real, really difficult summer because there was nothing we could do except go to the hospital. Um, you know, I'm sure that we did do other things, but not in my memory of that summer. So our memories yeah. are very fallacious. Yes. Um I I in the in the TV show there is a scene. So Marianne draws draws Mark his bicycle at one point. Yes. And in the TV show they deal with this by having Marianne's mother carry the bicycle upstairs so that she can draw it, which is a very funny thing to put in a TV show. Yes. Um, she's not pleased. No. And and of course in the book. <laughs> and and I'm kind of like, oh, you know, can't you just I mean, even then I think wouldn't you like have a picture book with a bicycle in it? Is that really? Did you really need the bicycle? But there we go. Yeah, in the book, it's very clear that she does copy her brother Thomas's bike because Thomas never appears in in the. He's there, but 
for bike owning, boys bike owning purposes, I think he is in the book, but not, not for any other reason. But yeah, she, she has to do it, draw it very, very carefully so that she doesn't forget brakes or something. Yeah. Yes, I think in 1952, in 1958, when the book was written, girls and boys' bikes were indistinguishable. But by mm. 1972, girls had baskets and boys had choppers. So, Yes, and uh, or racing bikes with uh, a crossbar. Yeah, mm. absolutely. So you've, you've mentioned the adaptations. Um, I've only managed to watch the first episode of Escape in tonight. Um, but I, one of the things that really did strike me was that because the book is, is describes Marianne's interiority so much, so much of what is happening is, is Catherine Storrs as a kind of omniscient narrator explaining how Marianne is feeling. But the doctor comes in to Marianne's bedroom after she's fallen off her horse um, and she's crying in the bed. And the doctor tells her to sort of basically sit up, pull herself together and says, I'm not going to talk to you if I'm only talking to the back of your head and gives her a hairbrush and tells her to brush her hair, which I thought was quite, it, it kind of gave, it, it changed the power between Marianne as the protagonist and the doctor a little bit. I, I didn't really like that. And, um, yeah, no, and it's both the, both the doctor and the, teacher <laughs> seem much more old-fashioned than other elements mm. of the plot here so for a start off the doctor's making house calls twice mm. a week to this poor girl um i mean it's not beyond the bounds of possibility but no it wouldn't happen now if you if you need to see a doctor every couple of days you're in hospital that's what yes um mm. and the teacher just goes on and on about all her different pupils yes and I think that's quite a big change now because they would not do that now. No, no, there would be much more. There's no teacher um, confidentiality there at all. It, yes. Um, so the entire great. plot is dependent on something that cannot happen in 2021. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I also, I mean, I did, I remember a doctor coming to see me once as a child and that's when I had tonsillitis and there was an idea that I might have to go and have my tonsils out and I, I don't know why the doctor came to our house rather than us going to the doctors. There must have been a reason. I don't know. But um, doctors did house calls then. Yeah, that. Was, I mean, I they still do have. They still do, but but not gen generally with kids. You have to bundle a child up and get it to a hospital now. Rather. Than yes, I think I've come out. I might have been maybe seven or eight at that point. Mm. So that would have been um, the kind of mid late mid 70s. 70s yeah so yes but it was it was a very exotic moment and that's why i remember it i think yes let's go on to tam tamarind because then we can also... and then we can talk a bit about tamarind and then talk about some of the ways the books are similar and different yeah and also particularly the point about social class that i know you want you want to talk about so this is the the summary um i should say that Tamarind and the Star of Ishtar is by Jasmine de Villan. And the um, it's a very beautiful object. I really like the cover design on this book. It's sort of very... Yes, I read it on my Kobo. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, the, the kind of colourful cover is, is, uh, is lovely. And it's a nice object. It feels like a nice object. 
um, it says Tamarind never knew her Indian mum who died soon after she was born. So when she visits her ancestral home, a huge house in the Himalayas surrounded by wild gardens, she's full of questions. But instead of answers, there is a forbidding silence. To unravel the mystery at the heart of who she is, Tamarind follows a trickle of clues to an overgrown hut, a star-shaped ring that glows, and a strange girl who calls herself Ishta. Yes, it, you've, you've said already that the mixture between magic realism and horror um, and fantasy in uh, Marianne. And I, for me, it feels like a mixture of a ghost story um, tamarind, I should say, feels like a mixture of a ghost story, although that is quite spoilery, but it was quite clear to me as an adult reader that this is a ghost story. Yes, there is a, there's a mystery at the heart of this book, but it is not very mysterious for grown-ups. No. It, it, it is mysterious for young readers. Yes. But, but uh, you know, experienced reader is not going to find this very mysterious book. So, so this book is set. Um, our heroine is in her heritage is Indian. Her her dad is Indian, but has been I think brought up in in the UK. And yes, and she doesn't have any of her Indian heritage from her mum, who is mm. who is dead. Um, but she also doesn't appear to have any Indian heritage from her dad either, which I I found really weird. I was like that that's strange. <laughs> That's, yeah, and, and you know it's not impossible. So, so the book is set because her dad and her new stepmom. This is also um, this mm. is not a wicked stepmother. This is just a stepmother. Are going on their honeymoon and they decide that the perfect place to plonk um, tamarind while they're on the honeymoon is with her Indian relatives who she's never met. This is this is not the perfect setup. I mean, it's a perfectly good no. setup for the novel, but you kind of go, what, why, 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 why would you do that? And, and you do get some of why that has happened and what yeah. has caused that to happen as, as part of the book. But anyway, so she's she's sent off to this this house with her new relatives. And the book that this reminded me of very strongly was not a children's book at all. It was Rebecca by yes. Daphne du Maurier, which I had me never too. read until about yeah. a year ago. And Helena, who you had on as your mm. first episode guest, said, um, oh, okay, I did a series on Facebook where I said, on a series, I did a post where I said, recommend me a fantastic book that's at least five years old um, and just recommend me one. And it could be anything. And I got fantastic recommendations, but, but Helena's recommendation was Rebecca and I read it and it's so what has it got in common with this? So we are in a um, colonial house, mm -hmm. maybe, don't know, big country house surrounded by wilderness mm -hmm. um, where everybody in the house is not talking about um, a dead former re resident who's, yes. who, who, who this, who our heroine doesn't feel she can um, keep up to. There's even a hut. So for mm -hmm. people who've read Rebecca, there is a hut, as mentioned in the blurb, and there is a hutted Rebecca. Um, the, the secret is not so grim here. No. So so it is not such a grim book as Rebecca. Um, and you, and you don't have a malicious house. I found that was though. really interesting. And I don't know whether um, Jasmine Bilan had Rebecca consciously in mind when writing this, mm. but I do think it picks up some of 
it, it picks up those tropes so strongly that that it has to have been an, an influence. I loved this book. I thought it was great. Um, I also thought it had plenty in it to amuse, um, to amuse and intrigue. Yes. Uh, you know, readers of about 10. This feel, both of these books feel like they're in that kind of, um, we're not troubled yet with teenage concerns. We are, yes. we are primarily looking for adventure stories that make us think a bit. It has tons of, has tons of Indian bits and pieces in, um, mm -hmm. you know, lots and lots of food, lots of I, lots of yeah. stuff about uh, the, the the gardens and the and the culture and all of that, and I loved all of that. And um, I and I, 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 I so, actually yeah. so she goes to. I tweeted Jasmine de Villan and I said to her how much I was enjoying the book, but that it made me very hungry when I was reading it <laughs> because yeah. of all the mentions of, of uh, Indian food and including sweets. And there's actually a dish mm. that she mentions uh, that called uh, Mughlai Malay Kofta that is mentioned in this book that I've actually mm. cooked for myself and my family. Yes, I've um, and it was it was delicious. Yes. So I, I that was I thank Justine de Balam very much for that. Uh, but yeah, it is. It, I love that in books. I love details of food, and that's one of the reasons why I really like children's books um, because they they go, children's authors very often tell us a lot about food in a way that authors for adults might tell us a lot about a different different kinds of sensory pleasure including sex alcohol you know and food as well but the food focus is so big in children's books so you've mentioned the kind of the the, the big house and the way that parts of the house and the grounds are very much off limits because of the association with um the the tamarind's mother with and, chinti chinti tamarind's yeah. mom is chinti which yeah. is the real name of just Binda Bilan's grandmother. So yes. I discovered yeah. at the end of the book. So the, the book is a, an homage to her. Yes, because uh, just Binda Bilan's mum grew up without her mother, who died when she yeah. was very young. So, yeah, that that sort of, um, I think that the, the kind of sense of the, the loss of someone who's so central, who should be so central to a family, is all pervasive. And also, I think... In the way that it's actually um, I was, for for a children's book, this really gets into that in a way that mm. I think is not common in books for this age group. This this family, they're all broken by their mm. grief, and yes. and the job of Tamarind in this book is to try to repair, is to accidentally repair that through her actions. I don't think it's, but the process of the book is mm. is a process of healing for this family and. And that's yes. that's quite an adult theme. So so it's not it's not quite this book isn't horrific in the same way as Marianne Dreams is, but it does deal with this very adult theme of loss and grief in a way that I think is not again not normal for children's books. Normally, the grieving person is so so. Tamara is not grieving for her mother in in, in except so far as I didn't have a mother and I wish I did. Yeah, it's everyone around who did actually know this woman, who was, who were her loved ones, who who each have their own relationship with this this dead woman who's yes. at, the, at the heart of the plot. And and the the only character, the only other character who wasn't affected by the death of Chinti, 
is um, the slightly younger cousin. Yeah, um, Arjun, the adorable little cousin. Yeah, he's he yeah. is a very sweet little boy, and and not in a kind of twee way, but he's a he's a nice. No, he, boy, he's but... fine. He's yeah. He's just a, a a child whose whose purpose in this book is to be a a beacon of sweetness and light. Yeah, um, and and to make origami animals. So yeah, the, those those two are the only ones that aren't suffering within the story because of the loss of Trinity, because they never knew her. And I think that that's... So, so Tamarin suffers because I think growing up without a mother mm. is, is a thing. I don't want to suggest that, oh, that no, this no, hasn't she's... been a problem for her, that she has got a gap as a result of it, but yeah, it's not and... affecting her in the... But all the others, the, 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 the aunt and uncle and the grandmother and the domestic servants, this is where we get back into... Yes. There are domestic servants in this book. Um, and, and they, they are old... core to the plot. Yeah. And the two, old, the two older cousins... They're all yeah. because one the, the older boy cousin is basically Kamal is mm -hmm. completely gone from the family. He, you know, it's quite clear that he doesn't really want to be around his family. And Sophia is um, acting out horribly because of her jealousy and anger towards. Yes. So, so in Tamarind. in this book, the bad tempered and stupid behaviour is given to Sophia. Tamarind is is not a you know her actions are never um she does do one exceptionally stupid thing at one point i mean my my son said to me um the other day oh but but kids do stupid things mum you, you know that's the thing that happens in books <laughs> mm -hmm. adults too you know but, but there's a point in this book where sophia does something really stupid because she's bitter yes and then instead of the obvious thing to do at this point would have been to go and get the adults. Yes. And instead of going to get the adults, <laughs> Tamarin goes, no, 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 I can make this all right. Now, that's, I don't think that was quite earned. That, if I had to pick one thing in this mm. book that I go, that's, you didn't quite land that. I, I didn't believe this child who'd been presented in this way would actually do that thing. But yeah, I, yeah but it was, it was minor. I did like this book a lot. Mm. Um, yeah. Yes, I, I do like books as, as physical objects. And I, I mean, I do have an e-reader myself. I, mine's a Kindle. But I, the, the one thing I think that the, the, way, that kin, the way that Kindles and e-readers have made the book publishing of physical objects books change is that they have to be attractive. They have to look attractive. And um, within, the, within oh, this beautiful. book... The, the it's kind a of the, beautiful book. <laughs> the decorations are just lovely. Um, at the, the beginning of the chapter, the chapter headers, I think they're called. Um, and the, the frontispiece is beautiful. So well done to Chicken House. And it has a map. And maps are wonderful in books. I love maps in books. So well done to Chicken I'm, House I'm not sure. the publishers. I'm not sure the map really is necessary. The thing that is necessary in this book is the family tree. Yes, um, without absolutely. which, I mean, it's not it's not as complicated as the family tree in a Game of Thrones in 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 a Son of Ice and Fire, <laughs> but it is it is quite the complicated set of characters. The fact yeah. that so, so the adventure part of this book, so so a bit of plot. Um, once Tamarin gets this lovely house, she goes wandering around in the garden, mm. and she meets a mysterious girl called Ishtar. Um, she also has a ring, which and she's told that Ishtar is the evening star. 
Um, mm. And uh, but so and then and then there's an adventure. So mm. it, there's a very small amount of mild peril. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but but that's all of that is slightly separate from what this book is re really about, which is all of the characters dealing mm. with this dead woman in their midst and and the fact that they haven't really resolved it they've never really resolved the fact that tamarind was shinty's child they've never really got to know tamarind's dad you know it's it's all a big mess mm. i think um, yes and 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 most of the book is actually spent with these people explaining that and explaining and then mm. gradually finding some ways around that i found it quite interesting that the adults um the adults blame uh Raji tamarin's father for the death of chinti because not because she got pregnant um without being married that's not the reason that that she became ill and died but if obviously if she hadn't been pregnant then she wouldn't have have become ill and wouldn't have died and sophia blames tamarind um because you know it, it was tamarind's birth that that precipitated the, the death of of chinti so that kind of both both generations blaming someone of their own generation for causing this this death and this loss is very interesting um but the the that doesn't seem to be the we don't know what the the servants think about Raju but they do they love Tamarind because of her mum who is clearly such a a vivid and different character um, and being an adventurous girl as well much much like Tamarind um, so that that's really that is a very interesting dynamic within the family I think and that kind of depiction of the way that grief and bereavement doesn't make you a nice person always it's not just about crying and being sad there's also the anger the bitterness frustration long-term illness doesn't make you a nice person in Marianne yes. dream so what we've got is people who as a result of external factors are are grumpy and bitter mm. and do things that they shouldn't do because of that yeah um and adults behaving inappropriate as uh, inappropriately as as much as as children so um that that's yeah. fascinating yes what what did you think about the style of the writing that the style of the two books is quite different isn't it what did you think about the continuous first person present in tamarind it, it's very it's fine <laughs> I mean, they're, they're both actually they're both stylistically competent books where mm. they have a they have an authorial voice and they stick to it. Um, mm. So the continuous first person present is quite is is useful in the way that a closed first person narrator mm. would be. That yes. that Tamarind is not always aware of why people around her are behaving in the way that they do, and she yes. gradually gets to understand that. And I think that's that's useful because, as I said, I don't think the mystery at the heart of this novel is not that mysterious so if you didn't have that very close first person style um 
it would be very hard to sustain it mm. if you were given any sense of the interiority of, of any of the other characters. And indeed, although Marianne Dreams is not um, in the first person, it has an omniscient narrator, um, the book is very much still told from Marianne's point of view. Yes, a limited third person. What the yeah. other characters do when Marianne is not around as a rule. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I think that the, I'm getting more used to continuous first person present um, narration. It is a thing in young adult and children's, contemporary children's books. It's not my favourite, but I think it works in this. Um, yeah, I think it works for this book because it, it is told so much from Tara Marin's perspective. Um, and in fact, the, the mystery, I worked out very quickly um, that Chinti, that Ishtar is the ghost of Chinti. But what I didn't work out was the relationship of Sophia to the, to Chinti and to the rest of the family. I thought she was just being surly and grumpy because she's been turned out of her bedroom. That, that was what I thought. And I thought she was a bit of a brat. But... And, and she was turned out of her bedroom. Um, their their view was, oh, it would be nice for the girls um, to, Tamara share. to share with Sophia, and and Sophia was like, oh no, yeah, oh so much, not that. Mm. Yes, <laughs> so, took herself so, off. So, uh, so she she is she is headstrong for reasons, is what I've written down. But she's got quite a lot of backstory to Sophia, and um, that explains mm. that's all explained part way and, through. And she does she kind of reverses the situation because you said that Chloe is not a wicked stepmother but Tamarind has definitely resented Chloe's presence in her life because her growing up has all been it's only been her and her dad and we don't know the reason for that we don't know why um you know there were not other family members around yeah. um his his parents aren't mentioned she's kind mm. of like oh i don't really know this side of my family but i i was i would have liked a little bit more to explain why she'd mm. you know never had a samosa i you know living i, I mean yeah. she might have lived in a very uh, in a very white bit of bristol i don't know yeah that, <laughs> that did seem though. weird you know yes. she seemed a lot she's a lot less familiar with indian food than than my children were at that age let's put it yeah. that way Yes, uh, and, I have and no then, Indian heritage. And she ate, um, yeah, she mostly eats scrambled eggs. It seems maybe it's just that her dad's not a very good cook. But uh, yeah, yeah, she, she eats very plain know. food, and and then she gradually gets the hang of Indian food. I've made lots of a few notes. Um, yeah, I made a note about. Yeah, I have actually said first person present narrative is very irritating. So yeah. <laughs> in my reasons why you might not like this book yes yeah. so but we were going um, to talk about social class weren't we and we were going to talk about surveys. yeah so so the television show of marianne dreams made me think of this because in the television show mm. um marianne is out riding her pony um yes which instantly puts you into a totally different social bracket from and, the book yeah. where she has longed for riding lessons and was given them for her birthday, which is, is attainable for me. You yes. know, it's kind of, I didn't ever get riding lessons, but I definitely wanted riding lessons and thought that I might have them and knew kids who had riding mm. lessons. It wasn't, 
you know, I didn't know any kids with ponies because no, because we weren't. Yeah. But that's um. But so in the in the book, she's definitely kind of not upper middle class. She's just middle middle class. And then in the yeah in the TV show, we... she's that's partly because everyone everyone from nineteen seventy two television seems posh. posh. Yeah. yeah. They weren't, but it yeah we we read because the BBC had a rule about RP. We Ooh. we read everybody from that age, that that time as as posh yes. on television. I grew up in a in an area um, which was sort of semi rural when I was growing up. It's now not; it's suburbia. But mm -hmm. there were a lot there were a lot of riding stables around uh, when I was a child, and both my sisters had free riding lessons in return for mucking out um, and helping around a riding stables. Uh, yep, where yep. basically child labour was the way that the riding school kept going. I believe um, it still is. I, yes. I believe that that is still how riding, because horses are very expensive. Yes, they are. Um, and they, my sisters, when they went riding, wore, they wore riding boots and they, they wore um, jodhpurs because you had to, but they were not white jodhpurs by any means. They certainly didn't have a little hacking jacket. jacket and... I think they eventually got their own riding hats as birthday presents. But we also had places where you could buy these sorts of things secondhand and quite cheap. Um, but they certainly did not look like Marianne at the beginning of Escaping Tonight, where she's out there looking like she's about to do some dressage or something. Um, and so that, that immediately... On her, on her own horse with no on her own pony. around. Yes. I mean... You know that's not, and 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 that's not what happens in the book, where she mm. has a riding lesson and then falls sick on her birthday. Um, yeah, she so, feels yeah, so, ill on coming home from her riding lesson, doesn't she? Yes. Before so, that, so, she's okay. So children's literature before this this time, an awful lot of it had was set in families where there were servants and this wasn't because mm. everybody had servants it was because the women who wrote children's books were quite posh mm. yes so very so often a lot of the things mm. you think of they came from quite well-to-do families so Catherine Storr probably quite well off went to posh schools but became mm. a doctor and worked as a doctor and then I think when she had her own children became an editorial assistant at yes when at as publisher and also yeah. started to write children's books so so she had a she was a career woman who then who then had children and mm. took a second career while raising her kids um so she doesn't put domestic servants in her book because I don't think at all they're just they're just families they're ordinary families mm. yeah um but there's a doctor who makes house calls and the teacher and they fulfill the domestic servant role which is to provide a parental role in a children's book when it's required and then mm. not be there when it isn't and that's very much the case in Tamarind and mm. Star of Ishtar where because it's a big old Indian house it's got a couple of retainers it has a housekeeper and a gardener um, yeah, and, and I they think are, the, the housekeeper in particular is extremely relevant to the plot because she is the person who is coaxing Tamarind to eat things that are not yes. scrambled eggs. Yes, yeah. uh, and toast. I think that the purpose of this is it is kind of the background of the family and the background of the house um, because it, it seems quite clear that Tamarind's aunt 
and their cousins don't actually live at the house no, full that's time. Right. It's the, I should say it's the grand it's the grandparents. The grandparents' house. house. Um, so I've, 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 one of the notes I've made is the society of women because apart from the little brother, ooh. the little cousin, all all the men in Tamarind and Staravishta are ciphers. They don't ooh. they don't their characters are not really fleshed out. You see a lot more of the women of of Nanny the grandmother and ooh. Simran the aunt and Tamarind, her cousin Sophia. Um, Chloe, even you get more of Chloe than you do of um, Raju. of Tamarind's dad yes. and uh, Raju, yeah, yeah, and and then not so much, not so much Marie Andrews, which has a smaller cast, but um, but but Tamarind and the Star of Ishta is a book about women, and yes, relationships of women, and I think that the idea is that Raju is very much an incomer into this society, and the family didn't really approve of him it, it seems definitely didn't approve of the the um the pregnancy before marriage but that she that tamarind comes from this space um the, this kind of himalayan um house which is quite far from so it does give it a, a very enclosed society you don't have they don't have visitors tamarind doesn't go anywhere um it, it's just all set on this estate this house and the, the estate of land around it um and it's all a week mm, the entire yeah. plot is one um it's a it's a one week um holiday that, that finishes with tamarind's birthday so there's a birthday mm. at the start of marianne dreams and a birthday at the end of Dumb yes of which is which was i wish i could say oh i thought of that but no i hadn't it was <laughs> it, it was entirely um felicitous yeah. was there anything else you wanted to say and discuss about the, the stories in the book <sighs> i i think i've covered most of my notes they're both good books go and buy them my boat i'd be happy to give either of those to mm. to the to my mythical 10 year old who was looking for some good things to read um, yeah <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't I have a ten-year-old who's looking for good things to read, but I mean, I think they're they're, they're worth your time and the time of your children. Yes, and um, um, another thing to mention about Jasminza Belan, which is one of the things that I think is quite astonishing, is this is only her second novel. Her first novel. Yeah, I meant to mention this. Her first yeah. novel was a competition prize. Don't do this. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I guess Chicken House are good people, but in general creative should not do work against a competition um mm, i think so, so this was a kind of competition for unpublished manuscripts and she won it and that was her first novel and this yeah. is the second i believe it is not like the first i've not read the first one no i haven't read the first one. It's, the first one is also set in india so i'm, I'm going to be yeah. interested to read it but um I, and it, and it, it's, won, it's, a pri it won prizes it's yeah, yes it's it won the Costa children's book award costa children's so, book award so that's um yeah that's it's no quite slash. something yeah so it's yeah. clear that that um just is, is a very good writer i'm going to be very interested to see what what her next novels are like as well i, I said there's a couple of there were just a couple of times where i was like oh this is you could have done a little bit more here but it's tiny things and i feel like this is a writer that's coming into her craft and she's going to do something that absolutely knocks it out of the park Quite I soon. agree. Whereas for Catherine Store, 
She's long dead and Marianne Dreams is her best book. There's another yes. book for this sort of age group called The Chinese Egg that is good. Mm. And um, both Marianne Dreams and The Chinese Egg have a teen novel sequel, which I think suffers from views mm. of what young adult novels ought to be like from the mid-70s. And I don't think either of them is, is as good as um, yes. Marianne Dreams or The Chinese Egg. The only reason I really want to read Marianne and Mark is that it's set in Brighton where I live. So I'm, I'll, I'll lend you my copy. It's fine. Oh, um, but I, I probably, I probably need to wait until we're in the same place and I can actually physically hand it over to you. Yes, because, most definitely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, um, hopefully that will yeah. not be too long. I don't for, think uh, it's as rare. I think it's just that nobody wants these books. I don't think they're as rare as you think. Um, I want... and some of them are on Kindle. Yeah. So, I... So I mean I would read read the other store books that are that are yeah. like, available as ebooks. I did pick up a copy of The Ghost in the Mirror, The Mirror Ghost. I got it in um I saw it in um a charity shop, so I bought it, but I haven't read it yet. But I, I think that you're right. I think that it's possible that the reason why Marianne Dreams is still in print, for one thing, so you can get lots of copies of it. If you look on any uh, secondhand book sales uh, website, you will find multiple copies, very not expensive at all. Whereas I suspect that um, Marianne and Mark didn't sell as many copies, therefore there are fewer copies available secondhand. It's so. had a few... I don't think Faber quite knows what to do with children's books. So mm -hmm. that's... Uh... These That's are Faber children's books, and there are a couple of Faber authors. Um, Antonia Forrest is another one, mm -hmm. where the where many of the books were issued in incredibly small print runs and yes. just are very hard to get now. I think Girls Gone By Publishing actually did a great job of they bringing do. some of those ones back into print. But I think, again, I kind of go, you know, if if books were in favour, they they often had very these very small print runs, and and then there would be a paperback, but the paperback would also have small print runs, and that's why. Uh, and then they didn't. I don't know if they distributed them badly. They they don't turn up in you know like my my copy of Marianne and Mark um, was remaindered as are quite a lot of my Ooh. stores, and I think. At the time when I went into a remainder shop and saw a huge pile of that book for 50p, I probably should have got 100. <laughs> <laughs> You'd make but you never fortune. know at the time. Yeah. It's yes. not a very good. I don't think it's a very good book. I, I, I mean, mm. I haven't reread it for this. I was going to, but I ran out of time. Um, mm. So if you if you're listening to this and screaming at the mic going, oh, no, um, Marianne and Mark is amazing. And this is why I, I just don't think it's as good. Well, we can, yeah. we do, can do get letters, tell us. do write in and tell us or tweet us or whatever. Yeah. One Another interesting point then is that you, I, I've just realised something, that the school stories by Antonia Forrest were available when I was a child through Puffin. My copy yes. of so the Marianne four, Dreams. The four term books. Yes. The four term books were reissued were issued in Puffin. So so there is a thing going on here where Faber did its hardbacks and then mm. sold the rights to Penguin oh. for the paperback 
for for these paperbacks that were successful but mm. but not for the so so Antonio Forrest is a great example because the four the four ones that are set in the school are easily available yeah very easy to get hold of and the other 170 or I don't know 15 Marlowe books something like yeah. are really hard to get hold of I, I haven't even read all of them I I, I love uh, Antonio Forrest she's absolutely one of my favorite authors I think she's amazing but the the stories that are set in the summer holidays or the school holidays about the Marlows are not available. And they the ones I have were from Faber. Now, my copy of Marianne Dreams is also a Puffin book. Um, and I think that uh, one of the things I love about this book is that you could send it's got in the back application for membership of the Puffin Club. And so you could. Uh, you could get your membership of uh, the Puffing Club for five shillings, 25p. Um, and I I was a Puffing Club member. I have a badge uh, of being a Puffing Club member. So, um, you know, that, that sort of, those kind of ephemeral things about books are, are often what I really like about them. You know, and what, what is uh, advertised in the book which for this is Once Upon a Time by A.A. A. Milne, uh, a book called A Lemon and the Star, which I've never heard of, Oversea Under Stone by Susan Cooper and A Dog So Small mm. by Philia, Philippa Pierce, which are all, you know, they are books that are still read and well thought of today. Oh, so, when Kay Webb was the chief editor at Oh Huffing, gosh, she, yes. She put a lot of fantastic books into print and, and a lot of them have become classic. Mm, she um, absolutely knew what so she was doing. I, I know that Forrest is off topic for this, but yeah, so there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There are 11 Marlowe books, mm. I think, if you, and there's a couple that are set in Shakespeare's time as well. Yes, that, uh, that about Nicholas Marlowe, yeah. Um, ancestors, Nicholas mm -hmm. Marlowe, yeah. And but of the 11 in the main series, the four that are easy to get, which are autumn term, um, end of term, the cricket term and the attic term, are the first, fourth, eighth, or ninth and tenth in the series. So mm -hmm. that doesn't make any sense at all. It, it just doesn't make sense. No. I, I, and you knew if you'd read them as a child, and in fact I did, you'd, you'd read these books and... There'd be huge gaps in the middle where other books appeared. I, anyway, and uh, that, that was a big digression. At some point, someone will come along with a with an Antonia Forrest, and you can nerd out about Antonia Forrest for oh, an entire. I, I might have podcast. to do a, a, just a book swap, a, a school stories book swap, uh, just about Antonia Forrest. Okay, well, um, thank you. I've taken up an awful lot of your time and i really appreciate I think we've, it we've had the, we've had our time and i think yeah. we'll have you'll be able to edit into to a nice podcast i will i will edit it to an hour i will but the um, the forest stuff is all staying in um so thank you alison um so where can people find you and your projects online um well as i said octothorpe in podcast readers and listeners near you and on octothorpe.podbean.com um my business is stow shirts and um i have an etsy store and it has a little website but probably um i mostly sell political and nerdy shirts um so mm. and also t-shirts and also pin badges and um enamel pin badges and things like that 
well, I've, I've run a couple of online conventions called Punctuation. Ooh. We're thinking about doing another one. <gasps> so we don't think we're quite done with online conventions yet. So there might no. be another one, but it's um, it's still in the planning stages. Um, mm, what else? I I might be involved in an Easter combid. <laughs> I committed at Easter to either to either bid for the Easter con or or, or endorse an Easter con bid, and I will I will definitely do one of those mm. things um, for twenty twenty three. And um, yeah, otherwise I just kind of sit in my house. I um, I'll give you a link for your notes to that long list of extremely good books because it's a public post on Facebook so Brilliant. people on Facebook will be able to read it and um, and make suggestions and um, but if they are going to make suggestions there's like 400 comments in this thread so so read the 400 <laughs> books that other people have suggested first before, it's only polite because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> people do people come in and because Facebook doesn't show them comments yeah. they recommend books that have already been recommended up thread but well, it's full of fantastic books of, of all genres and because um, it is a, yeah. a, a and thank you very a, much for inviting me to fantasy book swap which is lovely it's such a good um, idea for a podcast well thank you very much i'm going to now have to do my outro bit um who's next is, who's on next time or do you not know yet um there's two possibilities so i can't really say it depends thank you for listening to episode three of fantasy book club you can find us on Twitter at Fantasy... I still can't believe that my Twitter handle is Fantasy Swap. It fantasy just sounds so, Swap. It sounds so dodgy. Come and find me at... <laughs> Come and find me at Fantasy Swap. <laughs> on Facebook uh, at Fantasy Book Swap or email fantasybookswap at gmail.com. You can subscribe at more and more of your favourite podcast places as my uh, the number of episodes I release go up, uh, or you can download it from Podbean. Yeah, yeah. So, so Octothorpe's at thirty-seven, and I was using a podcast player yesterday that did not have it in its direct. Did it didn't come up on search? Mm. And when I when I then typed the feed in, it was like, well, we've already got that podcast. I'm like, well, why didn't you bring it up on search? Grr. You bad people. Um, thank you to Steve Vapertrails for production assistance and Jack Sadler-Johnson for the use of his beautiful track Bliss for the um, intro music and the outro music. So um, next time, bye!